0: Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of the Business for Good podcast. I was heartened by the reaction to the last episode, which featured my friend and colleague Doni Kirkendall's journey from ascending the ranks of goodwill to ultimately becoming the executive vice president of the Better Miko. Co. If you didn't listen to that, please do go back and check out episode 71. I think you'll really like it. One listener, Maya, wrote in saying, and I'm quoting her, I really appreciated Doni's story, especially that she left the comfort of a stable job for the insecurity of life at an early stage startup. Well, Maya, I certainly agree with you. It can be a harrowing experience to join startup land at any point in your life, but especially after an established career with guaranteed benefits that just don't often come with early stage startups. Now, that is a bold move. And that is exactly what our guest in this episode did as well. After a multi decade career in the plastics industry, including working at a small company you might have heard of called ExxonMobil, Kristen Taylor decided to take the entrepreneurial plunge and form her own startup, Radical Plastics, to help plastic manufacturers make their conventional plastics actually biodegradable. Now, if you're already listening to this podcast, you likely know all the concerns there are about the gargantuan quantities of plastic that humanity is producing and how nearly none of it gets recycled and it lasts in the environment for centuries. In fact, pretty much every piece of plastic we've ever made that hasn't been incinerated still exists, whether polluting our waterways or highways, beach shores, or in our landfills. Because you already know all of that, we don't talk at all in this episode about the problem of plastics. We only talk about the solution that Kristen is pursuing. Radical Plastics is essentially asking the question, what if all that plastic lining our hideways or sitting in the ocean would actually biodegrade? That is the promise of the technology that they are pioneering. They've discovered a mineral concoction that when added during the manufacturing of conventional plastic at even less than 1%, will eventually convert that plastic into food that microbes will recognize and eat. In other words, they can make conventional plastic, once it's in the environment, actually biodegrade. The name radical plastics has a double meaning, one of which is obvious, but the other relates to the fact that the degradation of the plastic they're enabling comes from a free radical reaction that degrades the polymer. It is an exciting story, but I don't wanna steal Kristen's thunder, so let me let her tell you all about it. And please, do me this favor. If you find this podcast useful, Please tell your friends about it, whether in person or on social media or anywhere else. Who knows? Maybe they'll be inspired to start their own company that will help ameliorate a serious social problem, and they'll have you to think. Maybe they'll even give you some equity before their big IPO. So share away. I now bring you Kristen Taylor of Radical Plastics. Kristen, welcome to the Business for Good podcast.
1: Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here.
0: Great to be talking with you. I understand I am actually talking with a fellow runner, but it sounds like, uh, like your running career may be uh, a little bit more prolific than mine. But tell me, you're, you're a chronic marathoner. Is that what I understand?
1: I'm a chronic marathoner. I started running marathons when I turned 40. Figured it was a good time to start.
0: Wow, nice. Yeah. <laughs> and at, at the risk of, of being impolite, how long ago was that?
1: That was about 13 years ago.
0: And what's your best time so far?
1: Oh, gosh. I haven't won any marathons so there's that
0: (laughs) okay all right i can
1: tell you that much (laughs) i wouldn't beat any you know any olympic times that you've seen so
0: they're pretty impressive to see these folks getting down like the women to like under 230 and the men down to two it's like you know it's very awesome yeah it's pretty amazing
1: i just use it it as an excuse to travel sign up for one that's six to 12 months in advance and then you have an excuse to go there
0: yeah, I, I understand that. Well, I am a, a one-and-done marathoner. So, I,
1: <laughs> Which one? I'm curious.
0: I did the Marine Corps Marathon in 2013. It did not go as expected. I had all these grandiose visions. My father had run it like 30 years prior, and I had these grandiose visions of beating his time. And sadly, I just really caved like mid-race. So it wasn't even at the 20-mile point. I, I had run 20 miles several times in preparation. But for whatever reason, I started cramping up. I never walked during any part of it, but I dramatically slowed down during the, the back half and, and it, was, it was not good. And so- It's always unpredictable. I've done uh, dozens of halves though, at least. So I don't know if that counts like as a few whole marathons, they're doing dozens of halves. I don't know. That's how it feels like to me, I guess.
1: I hear you. Halves are great. There's much less chance of dying, so. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, I like reducing my mortality risk. So, you know, it's pretty interesting though, because, you know, you made this uh, pretty substantial lifestyle shift after 40 into the world of long distance running. And you also made a significant lifestyle shift into the world of entrepreneurship. You know, you hear a lot of people who are entrepreneurs who are coming straight out of college, or maybe they went to get an MBA or something. But you know, you have a traditional career in the plastics industry that led you to at a different time of your life to actually get involved in entrepreneurship. So let me just first hear Kristen about your time in the plastics industry, like you're not new to this at all. So what was it that got you into plastic, and what have you done in plastic for the last couple of decades, or really a few decades, I should say? Right.
1: <laughs> I actually went into school as a computer science major, and then I happened to walk by the plastics lab, and I saw that they were making hula hoops and ice scrapers and Nerf footballs, and I thought, this is really fun. I should do this instead. I went to University of Massachusetts at Lowell, which is kind of renowned for their plastics program. So I have a master's in plastics engineering, and I spent the first half of my career with a little company called ExxonMobil. You might have heard of them. Have you heard of them once or twice?
0: (laughs) I think it's a startup, right?
1: It is. It is. Uh, It was actually, I went to work for a mobile chemical company, which was then usurped by Exxon. It was a great experience, actually. I met some fantastic people, just some amazing talent. And I got to really get a, a very broad view of the plastics industry. I started out in tech service, climbing all over equipment, troubleshooting issues. My territory was North, Central, and South America. So it was quick, go to Brazil and solve this problem and don't come back until it's solved. It was a really fun indoctrination into the plastics industry. And then I moved into account management, particularly in the flexible packaging space. So ExxonMobil at the time was making oriented polypropylene films, which are the primary flexible packaging substrate. So I got to call on Coca-Cola and Frito-Lay and all of these great companies trying to do innovative things in the flex pack side. So that was a lot of fun. And I left ExxonMobil around 2001 when I had my first child. I had three kids in three years figured that would be efficient. I helped my husband start a business. And then you know, when I went back into the plastics industry, which I was excited to do, I didn't really want to go back to kind of a big established company. I wanted to do something different. So there was a bioplastics company that was an MIT spinoff in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Metabolics. And so I was there. I went there and was in charge of business development there for about seven years. And that's where I met my co-founder, Yelena Khan, uh, and Dr. Khan, she's just an incredible polymer scientist, really innovative, really creative, and just a brilliant PhD, polymer chemist. So we had a lot of fun at Metabolics, trying to commercialize bioplastic materials, uh, which seemed really awesome. Oh, it's made from corn. You know, isn't that fantastic? It's biodegradable. But we learned through that experience that it was a lot more challenging than we expected. First of all, the material didn't look and act and perform like conventional plastics. It was a lot more brittle. It was incredibly hard to process. It had a very narrow processing window. So, if you went over a certain temperature, you would melt it. And then, if you went over a certain temperature, it would start to smoke. And it was really, really challenging to process. And in addition, it was around five times more expensive than anything we were trying to replace. So, the gamut of applications that were available to us really got a lot more narrow as we went along, given the price point. So, we realized that anything that really would solve the plastic pollution problem had to be cost-effective. It had to be a drop-in replacement for what people were using now. It had to perform the same, and biodegradability just had to be an added benefit. So uh, we uh, left that company around 2013. Yelena and I went our separate ways. Uh, I went to SABIC, which is the old GE Plastics, another big oil company, and then I spent a few years at Huntsman Corporation. Uh, so I kind of went back to the big established plastics company, but, you know, we kept longing for a solution for this plastic pollution problem. And Yelena and I felt strongly that it needed to be solved from inside the industry. So Yelena made this fantastic discovery around 2017. She was reading a patent for this fine mineral matter, which is a waste product that comes from the mining industry. Basically, when they mine things like coal, you know, everything with caloric value, all the carbon goes in one pile and then all the dirt, minerals, and everything else they dig up goes in another pile, they were trying to find applications for all of these waste materials. And this unique fine gray powder they found had a really great balance of transition metals, alkaline, alkaline earth metals that were healthy for the ground. So they were selling it into agriculture as a soil conditioner, and farmers would blend it with the soil to make their soil healthier and make their plants healthier for the next growing season. But she looked at the chemistry of this fine mineral powder and said, kind of had this aha moment and said, I can use this to degrade plastics. So she got some of this material. Again, it's just a fine gray mineral powder. And she blended it with conventional plastics and made some, some very thin film, laid it out in her backyard in Marblehead, Massachusetts, over the summer of 2017. Literally, this is her test plot of land. After around three months, it still looked like film. It was a little more brittle, but it still looked and felt like polyethylene film. She said, well, that was a fun experiment. And in September, she folded it up and put it in an envelope and put it in her cold, dark basement and forgot about it. And she came back around six months later and looked in the envelope, happened to find the envelope, and there were these just fine, waxy flakes left of the film. And she thought, wow, this is really interesting. Maybe this did work. And she checked the molecular weight and the chemical composition of that material, and she found it had degraded into essentially what was a biodegradable wax. So that's when she started filing um, a provisional patent on the technology in early 2018. And she gave me a call and she said, I think I'm really onto something. And we joined an accelerator program called Cleantech Open, which is a fantastic national program for young startup companies. And it was really like a startup boot camp because both of us had been with kind of established companies our whole career. And we didn't really know how to go from zero to 60 on a brand new company, a brand new concept. So we did Clean Tech Open kind of just nights and weekends while we had our our regular day jobs. And uh, we were a finalist in the fall of 2018 in the Cleantech Open Northeast Division. So we got to go to nationals in Los Angeles, which was super fun. And at the end of January of 2019, we actually won the national competition.
0: Wow, congratulations. Yeah,
1: based on this technology. And a lot of it came from the fact that we were from the industry. So we knew the players, like we knew the problems. We had had been there, done that before. So we had kind of a, a leg up on some of the kind of younger, more new entrepreneurs who didn't know a lot about their market. So that's when we started talking with investors. We raised a small round in August of 2019, and that allowed us to quit our day jobs and do this full time.
0: Nice. Kristen, what's a small round? How much was this round?
1: We did an $800,000 convertible note, and we have been talking with larger VCs who were willing to give us larger chunks of money for larger chunks of the company, who had maybe very specific ideas about where to go with the technology. But we ended up going with a smaller um, VC called Good Growth Capital, because we really felt that the woman in charge, who was just absolutely fantastic, she really understood our technology. She understood us. She has a PhD from MIT. She really is, you know, cares about the environment, but also cares about women entrepreneurs and really boosting women entrepreneurship overall. And she just really trusted us, trusted the technology and trusted our knowledge in the market and was just such a great supporter of radical plastic. So we went with a smaller round with good growth capital and it was a fantastic decision. But that really launched us around two years ago.
0: That's awesome. So uh, considering, you know, you're talking about that your investor really understood the technology, help me as a dummy who does not have a PhD in plastics or from MIT or anything like that. I was smart enough to not even apply to MIT since I would not have gone in. So help me understand though, like, is this a chemical process? Is it a biological process? Like I've seen, for example, there are some type of uh, fungi that are supposed to be able to like digest uh, plastic. And I don't think that's what you're doing though. So what is it that is actually degrading the plastic? And then after that, I want to talk a little bit more about just what are the, the applications here. So first and foremost, like how does this actually work? If I were to go look up that provisional patent that you mentioned that your co-founder submitted, what would it say in layman's terms?
1: So what we're doing is we're using this fine mineral powder as a natural catalyst to degrade plastics. We're starting with a family of plastics called polyolfins, and that's made up of polyethylene and polypropylene. And polyolsins are essentially long carbon chains with hydrogens hanging off them. It's a pretty simplistic plastic. It's also around 55% of all plastics made and 65% of all plastic waste that's found in the environment are made of polyolsins. So it's a really good place to start because it's a huge market and solving that problem would be very impactful on the pollution issue. So what this natural catalyst does, we add it, we blend it with these conventional plastics, just around one half to 1% in the manufacturing process. So we buy base resins from all the major manufacturers, polyethylene from all the major manufacturers. And we formulate with our catalyst and very specific co-catalysts and inhibitors and antioxidants. Because it's really, it's not just a add this magic powder to anything and it will become biodegradable. It really is in the formulation chemistry.
0: So to be clear then, Kristen, this is not a solution for plastic that is currently made. Like you couldn't take a whole bunch of plastic and put it in, a, in some industrial plant and compost it with your mineral powder here.
1: Right. Although we're looking at the use of this catalyst in chemical recycling because we have found that In gasification, for example, it can reduce the energy requirements for chemical recycling by almost half. So we are looking at this catalyst in chemical recycling, and not only in gasification, but also in pyrolysis. But our initial entry into the market is blending it with conventional plastics when when you're making them, so that they are kind of a drop in replacement for what people are using now. And the way that the catalyst works is it Once it's in the environment, it looks and acts like a regular plastic. If it were sitting on a shelf in a store or in your house, it wouldn't degrade. But if it leaks into the environment, it would cause this two-stage degradation process. And the first stage, the abiotic stage or chemical stage of this degradation, this catalyst kicks in and it starts to reduce those long polymer chains into very, very, very small polymer chains, what they call oligomers. But it also changes the material chemically. It adds oxygen groups onto the backbone of the polymer to make it go from a hydrophobic material to a hydrophilic material. So it really changes the chemistry of the plastic and breaks it down, breaks down that molecular weight, breaks down those long molecular chains until it's in a state that it can be digested by microbes that live in the environment. So that's the second stage of degradation is the biotic phase, where microbes, whether in in the soil or in the ocean or in fresh water... Can actually consume this material. They see it as a food source, as a carbon source. They consume this material and they degrade it into CO2, biomass, and water. And there are these trace minerals left over. But again, these are just minerals that have come from the ground that we're returning to the environment. And it's only around one half to one percent of the formulation.
0: Cool. So, you know, I'm wondering here then, Kristen, like, let's say I have a plastic lawn chair that is out in the environment, like it's in my backyard. Is that going to biodegrade?
1: It could, so that's not a great application. <laughs> you know sometimes the most sustainable option is to make things more durable so that you don't have to replace that lawn chair every five
0: years. okay. so so this is really for indoor plastic use, which of course, I'm sure is nearly all plastic use, but you know, you don't want this to you know, I, I don't want to get into my lawn chair and just fall through it. and
1: you you probably don't. you probably don't. but we're really targeting applications that like packaging or like agricultural films that are used short term and then have high incidence of leakage into the environment.
0: So Let's talk about that first application, because I know if you drive by a farm, sometimes you'll see like they have this black plastic film that is there to prevent weeds from growing and, and to retain the moisture in the soil and so on. Those are just regular old plastic. They're not going to biodegrade. You're saying that you can put, when they're manufacturing that, you can put it in at around 1%, And then it's in the sun all day in the soil. So what's going to prevent it from degrading? Or is it just that it'll take too long to degrade that it's not inhibited for the user?
1: Great question. So yeah, we add around one half to 1% into regular black polyethylene. So the film looks and acts and performs just like the plastic mulch film that growers are used to. And the way we design the formulation is we include not only the catalyst, but inhibitors. So we can include different types and amounts of inhibitors that save off that degradation reaction as long as we want. We can control that service life of the material anywhere from around two months to around two years. So the film we're making now um, is designed to last outside for around six months. And then once that inhibitor is used up, then the catalyst kicks in and starts to degrade the material.
0: Cool. So why would a farmer use this? I mean, of course, an environmentally conscious person who is farming would say, I'm using this because I, I don't want to create plastic pollution in the environment. But is there an economic benefit? Like, is there some other tangible benefit to the user aside from not damaging the planet?
1: There's a huge tangible benefit. And that's, that's why we're starting with agricultural films. Right now, farmers pay an average of around $180 an acre to put down this film. And then they pay an average of anywhere from $150 to $250 an acre to collect and dispose of it at the end of the season. So it's a really big expense, um, depending on labor rates and tipping fees. This material can't be recycled because it's covered in dirt and chemicals. So it's extremely hard to recycle and expensive to recycle. So farmers either have to landfill it or incinerate it. And some of them do that on the farm, which certainly isn't good for the environment. And others pay to have it incinerated, which, again, produces greenhouse gases. So, with the radical plastics film, they just till it into the soil where it degrades in a matter of months. So, it really is a cost savings for them at the end of the day.
0: That's great. And is the actual plastic going to cost more or less to purchase? Like, does your half to 1% increase the cost of goods sold for the manufacturer?
1: Well, there's cost and there's price, right? So. <laughs> The good news is is that it is very cost-competitive. Right now, there are other biodegradable mulch films on the market that are around two to three times what normal polyethylene film is, but many of them are very hard to handle. They're very thin. They're very fragile. They get sticky with moisture. They're really hard to handle, but but growers are trying to use them because they want to be environmentally friendly. They want to avoid that cost at the end of the season, and those are two to three times more expensive. Our goal is to make something that's more like one and a half to two times more expensive because it's still very economically favorable for the grower, because they're saving all that money at the end of the season.
0: That's interesting. Of course, you want to make sure that the doing the right thing doesn't become too cost prohibitive. And presumably, if, if in the long term, they're saving money, it'll still be an attractive thing for them to use. Kristen, you have talked about the what is typically the three R's, right? reduce, reuse, recycle. And you've added another R here. And so Tell me, why is reduce, reuse, recycle not sufficient? What should we be adding here?
1: Well, most plastics were designed to be super durable, whether or not they need to be super durable. I mean, my typical example is a loaf of bread. If you've ever gone to the grocery store to buy a loaf of bread, what's the first thing you do? You look at the expiration date, which is in like a week or two, right? And yet we're packaging that bread in something that if it leaked into the environment would last for a hundred years. Like That doesn't make any sense at all. We should be redesigning these materials that are used for short-term applications so that they are still recyclable, right, so that they are still perform the function that they were designed to perform. But if they leak into the environment, they shouldn't last hundreds of years. My co-founder, Elena, she again, she's a brilliant PhD scientist, and she went specifically to this university to study under this gentleman, Norman Billingham, because he was kind of the guru, really the, the pioneer in terms of polymer stabilization and degradation. And she worked the first half of her career making polymers more stable for applications like automotive, where you don't want them to break down. And then she spent the second half of her career designing them to be degradable. So we always say reduce, reuse, recycle, but redesign. Let's let's redesign these materials so that it makes more sense. If it's packaging, it doesn't need to last forever. It needs to last for maybe six months or a year. needs to perform, still needs to be recyclable and support the circular economy. But we all know that these materials, some of these materials are going to leak into the environment. And there's no reason we shouldn't be designing them to degrade if that happens.
0: Got it. So it's a very interesting analogy that you use with regard to the loaf of bread. So, you know, first off, I'll say when I buy a loaf of bread, I look to see not just the expiration, I look to make sure there's some type of preservative in there. So it will last longer than a week. So I'm like, I'm purposefully looking to make sure there's something that's going to keep it uh, longer for me because I may not eat it within a whole week. But what I do then, so let's say I buy that loaf of bread, and I take that plastic bag when I'm done, and I put it in the trash, and then presumably it's going to go into a landfill. So if that plastic bag had the radical plastic magic mineral powder in there, and it goes into a landfill, will it still biodegrade?
1: Right, that's a good question. And it really depends, is the answer. It depends on how the landfill is run. In a a properly run landfill, things are really just entombed. There's very little oxygen, very little sunlight, and you can dig down in a landfill and find a newspaper from 50 years ago that's still legible. You can find a carrot from 20 years ago, you know whereas those things are, are thought to be biodegradable. So if it ended up in a landfill with no oxygen, no sunlight, no you know no temperature, it would stay inert like a regular plastic. And sometimes that's what you want because things that degrade like food waste produce methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. so sometimes you just want them to stay inert. But our goal really is to send these materials to recycling. Our materials still fully recyclable along with conventional plastic? But if they escape recycling, if they escape the landfill and they end up in the ocean, in the environment, again, they won't last forever. They'll degrade in a reasonable time frame.
0: Got it. So it, it doesn't require soil microbes. It could be even oceanic microbes.
1: Correct. And we're working with two labs on really defining the ocean degradability of our materials. So it's a very long test, as you can imagine, because the colder temperatures make degradation slower. But we're working with Woods Hole. We're hoping to work with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Uh, We're talking with them right now. And also, there's another lab up in Maine called Bigelow Lab for Ocean Sciences. And they've provided such great information. And they're so eager to find a better solution because they understand what plastics are doing to the ocean environment. So they're excited to look at different options for materials that don't pollute the ocean long term.
0: That's cool. So when do you think you'll be in the market? Like when are we going to see actual radical plastic out on some agricultural field?
1: (laughs) Well, we are on our second summer of beta testing. So we have a formulation design. We tested in seven different locations around the U.S. last summer, including from Florida to California to Maine, all different climates, different crops. Uh, This summer, we've tested in 14 different locations, again, expanding our crops, our expanding the, the climate to really get a lot of data points and case studies. And we'll be selling the radical plastics, biodegradable mulch film by the end of 2021. So it will be in the market by the end of this year. We're working with a company called Charter Next Generation Films, and they sell regular polyethylene mulch film now. And this is just going to be a much greener, much better option for them to provide to their customers. So we're selling the pellets to Charter Next Generation, and CNG, Charter Next Generation, will be selling the mulch film. And they're just a fantastic partner. They really focus on highly engineered, sustainable solutions. That's really their wheelhouse, is is things that are truly sustainable, that provide outstanding engineering properties. So, And they have just a wonderful female CEO, which, which is an added benefit. So <laughs> Kathy Bullhouse is their CEO. So they're just a great partner to work with to bring this first product to market.
0: Well, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. So are you going to then, once you start selling, go out and raise another round of funding?
1: We likely will, because this product is pretty easily scalable. It really is quite a drop in replacement for, for regular polyethylene. But we really need to build our team because there's so much interest beyond agriculture. We've been really super focused on agriculture the last two years. But we have a lot of interest from packaging industry, from bags, paper coatings polypropylene fibers I mean you can imagine over the past year or so how many masks you've seen and a lot of those are polypropylene fibers that are that are not degradable we can render them degradable if they end up in the environment so there's so many applications that are suitable for this this type of technology and we need to grow our team in order to do that so yeah we'll likely be raising a next around next year
0: okay yeah, that's great well we'll be looking forward to hearing and, and seeing how that goes Kristen so let me just ask you, you know, you are now a few years into your entrepreneurial journey after a multi-decade career in the conventional plastics industry. So have there been any resources, Kristen, that have been useful for you that you would recommend, like any things that you read or any speeches you heard or anything else that was particularly useful that you would recommend to other people who are thinking, geez, what she's doing sounds really cool. I'd like to maybe try my hand at it, too.
1: Absolutely. You know, I mentioned to my brother-in-law, who's, you know, kind of Harvard MBA guy that I wanted to start a company. And the one book he recommended that I read was The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. And and it's subtitled Why Most Small Businesses Don't Work and What to Do About It. And it's just a super practical, hands-on guide to starting and running a small business. So The E-Myth Revisited is definitely one I'd recommend. And I also heard, I heard a TED Talk by this guy, Chip Conley. And then I bought his book called Peak how great companies get their mojo from Maslow. And it talks about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Chip Conley, he founded, in when he was in his 20s, he founded this boutique hotel group called Joie de Viz that he sold in 2010. And then I think he became an advisor to Airbnb. But he's just super creative and innovative and an out-of-the-box, big picture thinker. And I remember him saying, don't tell me that you can't motivate your employees to your big vision. Half of the people who report to me in my hotel group clean toilets for a living. And if I can motivate them around a grand vision, you can motivate your employees. You know, I mean, he's just a, a really a practical entrepreneur, but also just kind of a visionary. And he provided some really good insight.
0: Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it reminds me of the story when JFK was touring like one of the NASA facilities and he asked uh, a guy who was, who was mopping the floor what his role was there. And the guy allegedly responded to him helping put a man on the moon.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I love that mentality.
0: I hope that story is true. It sounds kind of apocryphal to me, but I hope it's true. (laughs) I do. It's a good story no matter what, and it's a good lesson. Everything that we do is going to have an impact. Well, I'm very much hoping that you have a major impact. Obviously, plastics are a huge, huge environmental problem, and I'm hoping that the technology that you are pursuing, Kristen, is going to help to ameliorate some of that problem at least. But if you weren't working on this and you were thinking about maybe other companies that you hope somebody else will start to make a difference in the world, whether on this issue or on others, what other ideas uh, would you suggest to somebody seeking to start their own company about uh, whether it's on plastic or anything else?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. My pet peeve, honestly, is people who litter. (laughs) And, And trying to change that behavior I think is so challenging. I mean, I was when I went over to run the Tokyo Marathon, I was just so incredibly amazed at how clean everything was. And I've I've always thought, you know, how can we create either some kind of force behind anti littering, you know, whether it's a product or service or, or, or marketing message or incentive or system that really changes people's mentality around littering. I I always thought, you know, maybe if I could create some super duper incredible plastic that we can incorporate into cigarette butts, for example, like when someone drops a cigarette butt on the ground, it should like come back at them at high velocity. It just should. You know? (laughs) If we could I don't know, if I if I could kind of start a company or create something that would really prevent people from intentionally, you know, destroying the planet through through littering, that would be, I think, an incredible, incredible company.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, you know, I I know cigarette butts like make up a huge portion of litter, especially on the beach and It's so much that even there are now uh, birds who are utilizing those cigarette butts in their nests because it has like an anti-parasitic effect so that they've actually learned that including those cigarette butts in their nests is likely to make their little hatchlings even uh, healthier. So it's a really amazing uh, case of like interspecies upcycling, I guess. (laughs) I love
1: that. (laughs) I guess that's good.
0: There is like a little bit of a silver lining, although a very faint one. But yeah, I know, um, I think in, uh, in Singapore, they have like really serious littering offenses. Like I think it's like $1,000 for a first-time offense for littering there, which is one reason why so few people litter. But yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe there's some technology, though, that if the litter became biodegradable it's once in the environment, it wouldn't be as big of a deal. So, all right. Well, that's really great, Kristen. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to talk with you. I will be rooting for your success, and I can't wait to see I can't wait to see uh, photos of or video of the Radical Plastics mulch uh, liner in the field. See the news about your big fundraising round as well. So uh, we'll be looking forward to that. And if people want to find you online, where can they go?
1: They can go to radical-plastics.com.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much, Kristen.
1: Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.